0: This is The Guardian.
1: Hey, it's Mike. Today, we bring you the second episode of The Extraordinary Story of Julia, a woman who escaped modern slavery right here in the UK. If you haven't listened to yesterday's episode, I strongly suggest you go back and listen to that one first. And a warning before we start. This series includes references to suicidal thoughts and descriptions of sexual exploitation and violence. So please take care when listening.
2: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot.
3: It's been seven months since Julia was trafficked to the UK. She's still thousands of pounds in debt to the gang who brought her here and only has a couple of pounds left in her pocket. She can't find a way of making money, even enough to buy food. Julia sees an advert online in Polish for escort services and they say no documents are required. She wants us to make it clear that she didn't want to do this but felt she had no other choice but to respond. Immediately, they call her back. The woman on the other end of the phone tells her she'll need to get a bus to Slough. When Julia arrives at the address, she's welcomed in with open arms.
1: I was scared. The girls start talking to me. They start explaining about massage. They give me a cigarette and they ask me, do I eat? I say, no. They give me some food. I think, OK, then I will stay in the morning. <laughs> I still just have uh, two pounds left or something. And I st- stay in the morning. Girls make me coffee. Say, don't worry, we will help you. Yes. And after customers come in, um, we're going all to the bedroom, and he chose me. <laughs> and I was so scared. <laughs> and after... When I've been with him in the bedroom, I'm just crying. The girls and giving me something, uh, alcohol, some vodka, and I'm just sitting in the toilet and crying. This is being my first customer. Yeah.
3: The brothel is controlled by three Polish bosses, who advertise the women online and ensure that a steady stream of customers keep coming through the door. After a couple of months, Julia is able to start making some money. She even manages to send £100 back to her daughter, Marta. It's not much, but it's the first time she's been able to do this since she arrived. It gives her hope of finding her way back home. But that hope doesn't
1: last long. They say I have to pay for a website.
3: This is like an escort website. Yes.
1: I pay for adult website £2,000. But then my boss told me I have to pay
3: again. So £4,000 now you have to pay. Yes. £4,000 for a website profile. Added to the £4,000 she already owes to the gang who trafficked her to the UK. They've started calling her too. And they want their money.
1: I have to start thinking to pay back the money because this has been over now. Seven months or something, and I didn't pay anything. He's called me, he told me, he gave me the job, why I don't want to work in. This is now my problem, and I have to find the money, pay back money as soon as possible. Yes, yeah, like. This is how I stay working slow.
3: From The Guardian, I'm Annie Kelly. Today in Focus The woman who took on her traffickers and won. Part 2 The House in Slough. Sex trafficking, where someone is exploited in commercial sex work, is by far the most lucrative of all forms of modern slavery. Police believe that some organised criminal gangs running brothels in the UK can make over £1 million in profits each week.
1: One day, I have 16 customers
3: and I just have £90. This part of Julia's story is difficult to listen to, but is crucial in understanding how this kind of crime works in neighbourhoods up and down the country. Slav, Kravli,
1: highway Haivikam, Walking, stock.
3: They're running lots of different houses? Yes,
1: and two, three weeks in the Slav they say you're you now going for a wedding. they coming, they're driving you for a So they're moving you from house to house? Yes,
3: they're moving me from house to house. Under international law, trafficking, including sex trafficking, is defined by exploitation. At this point, it's important to say that not all sex work is exploitation. Many sex workers across the UK are not being exploited by a third party and have control over who they see and the money they make. Trafficking happens when fraud, force or coercion is used to make a profit from someone's labour, or when someone is transported from one place to another in order to exploit them. This can be across borders, or it can be from one house to another. And even if you agree to work, if someone's making a profit from you, it's still trafficking. And how much of the money do you keep? From the client. I
1: didn't like, they give me like half money, but not half because I've been charging for profile as well. And as well, if customers come and the reception is, yes, she promised customers, like, you do this, 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 and she promised
3: you do everything. Julia has no control over who she sees or what they want her to do. Sometimes 20 minutes into being with a client, Julia realises that he's been promised sexual acts that she's not agreed to. Customer showing the text message. And when you say, no, I
1: can't do this. This is not me. This is a receptionist. You have to pay back money
3: and you pay back your money. So they've charged them a certain fee to do things. Then when you won't do them, you have to pay. Yes. And you pay because
1: how you can kick him out or something.
3: Is, is this being your problem? Julia gave me an example of how this happens. Say a customer is paying £100. £50 goes to the bosses, £50 goes to Julia. If Julia refuses to do something that was promised by the brothels receptionist, she has to refund the customer, say £10. That leaves her with 40 But a lot of that is going on her debts both to the brothel bosses and to the people who brought her to the UK.
1: Sometimes I pay back £200, sometimes I pay back just £100, sometimes £80. It depends how much money I have. Sometimes being quiet you
3: just make 100 for one week. She has no money left to send back to her daughter Marta. When she speaks to her on the phone she doesn't know how to explain why she can't come home. I think I wanted just to ask, you know, obviously we're at this, re- we're at this really difficult part of your story. Yeah. And, you know, if there's, if there's anything else you want to say about that time... Uh, in your life,
1: and you mean about slow
3: Yeah.
1: Um, is this has been, how I say, is this has been hard. Is this has been difficult time, because without money, without language, without documents, I keep looking for the job, of course, but where I can go and work? I' have been in debt. It's been a couple of years, and I don't have a uh, money safe. I'm still on debt and I have a line in Ukraine. So you're stuck
3: because of your debt?
1: Yes, I've been stuck. <laughs>
3: In many cases, modern slavery doesn't look like what you might expect. Instead of physical constraints, people are often controlled by invisible chains of coercion and deception. In the decade of reporting I've done on human trafficking, I've spoken to dozens of survivors like Julia, and in almost every case, yes, there was violence, but debt and the fear of what might happen if they didn't pay it back was often the main weapon of psychological control used by the criminals making money from their bodies. Many of them have told me that being able to keep at least some of the money and send something back to their families, or the hope of paying back their debts and being free, was the thing that they clung onto, a way of surviving the trauma.
1: She sent me very bad customers. Customers was very drunk, and when he came in, he was first, he smelled disgusting. And he was very good. And he wanted domination. Like, he beat the girls and um, he got all uh, with hair. I mean, very hard. He pulled your hair out? Yes. the Yes. And. Uh, Actually, she promised him all services, anal, and everything. Everything what you want can say, what you can, even cannot imagine in your head. Horrible things. So this is a place where they send
3: really violent.
1: Yeah, in violent. Slav, this is. I hate these people so much. I hate these people. They know I don't have a choice, and they send you very, very bad customers. Yeah, being very bad.
3: Oh, I'm so sorry.
1: No, that's fine now, but, yeah, it's bad experience.
3: Yeah, but By now, Julia has spent three years under the control of this gang, and it's got to the point where she doesn't think she's going to get out alive. So one day, when they try to send her back to one of her most violent clients, she says no. I don't remember, it's been
1: 12 o'clock night or something, and I say I'm not staying with him. And he want, You sent me these customers, he was very bad. Uh, you say to
3: him this and this and this, I, I can't, I can't do this. The receptionist tells her the bosses aren't happy. They're on their way and they'll be there in half an hour. And she say, you have to
1: explain this now. And I just get panic and scare.
3: She calls a woman who used to work at the brothel and asks for help. She says Julia can go stay with her at another brothel nearby. I'm going with
1: her the place where she be in morning. I sleeping in the kitchen. I like cleaning before they wake up. She coming and she say reception want to talk in to me. She working for bosses for other people. And reception say to me if you want to stay you have to work.
3: But now they're saying if, if you need somewhere to live you have to work for us. Because I scared I stay working for new people. So Julia has finally escaped, but straight into the hands of another gang, the third organised crime group to exploit her since she came to the UK. Julia gave us her account of what her life was like at this time. She says her new boss, Alexander, runs a ruthless money-making operation. She comes to understand that she's just one of a huge network of women, all making money for him. His right-hand man is Marek, who works as a driver and collects money from the brothels. While the bosses might be different, Julia's caught in the same trap. Julia says she still has no control over how many men she sees. The two receptionists, who work on commission, fill her week with appointments, sometimes 12 men a day. She says the receptionists would say she could finish at 10pm, Then suddenly there would be appointments booked in for two in the morning. She tells us she's moved between brothels all the time, sometimes after just two weeks if there aren't enough customers, or so the sex buyers can have more choice. Julia says Alexander keeps track of her movements, often following her when she leaves the apartments. According to Julia, she has to give him 50% of all her earnings. Alexander also charges her £2,000 for her online escort profiles, always making sure Julia's in debt. She tells us at times she's keeping so little money, it can take her three months to scrape together just £100 to send home to Marta. The gang knows how desperate she is. They know she's someone who they can keep taking and taking from, and she can do nothing about it. Julia says they even tell her she should be grateful to have somewhere to live. If they decide to throw her out, she'll be homeless. She's told they've done that before. The other women working for Alexander are also struggling to cope and are finding ways to numb the pain. Some
1: girls take drugs. A lot of girls take drugs. A lot. Cocaine. To be able to just keep going? Yes. Yes. Is this experience that you have, you don't have any school for this experience. They many times ask me for the cocaine.
3: They want you to take
1: it? Yes. And I say, no, 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 always. And I even buy water, uh, I buy bottle water, package water. And uh, I open if I drink and forget I don't drink this water anymore. You
3: think they're going to put stuff in your drink? Yes. Because I, I, I guess they then charge the girls for the drugs, right? Yes. Despite the hell of what she's living through, Julia finds the strength to stay alert and survive. She wants to keep believing that she will get back to Marta one day. Julia is shipped from town to town, from brothel to brothel. At this point, she's been exploited in brothels around England for nearly five years. She is broken. One Wednesday in September 2019, Julia is in a brothel in Woking when she's told that Alexander is waiting for her in his car outside. She isn't told where she's going, but Julia's used to this by now. She goes down to meet him. And he drives her to another brothel in Sunbury on Thames. Then, two days later, just after lunchtime. Uh, Okay. An undercover officer knocks on her door.
2: Please! Please!
1: When they broke in the door, I was so. You can't believe how I've been inside scared. Because how I can. The first things being in my head, how I can explain they broke in the
3: door. <laughs> and I think, oh my God, they will kill me. Within minutes of meeting Julia, Martin, the detective from Surrey Police, suspects what he's seeing is a case of modern slavery.
4: You have minimal clothing there. All the clothing that was there was sort of more for sex work. Um, I think she had a grey tracksuit and probably a couple of tops. was the only sort of normal clothing that I could see. So straight away I'm thinking there's problems here. As that warrant continued, uh, we found envelopes in a kitchen drawer with times and amounts on it, which again to me suggests well that's for a pimp. And I sat down and I said, look, I don't know you. I don't know your background. I had to basically say, listen, I don't care about any immigration status. I don't care about anything like that. I just, you know, it's you that I'm worried about. She then started making comments as time went on, like, I'd rather die than speak to you. You don't know who you're dealing with. These people are dangerous. All this sort of stuff.
3: There's a lot of debate around whether brothel raids are the right way to help trafficking victims. A police raid will be a terrifying experience for many women, especially if you don't trust the police, or you're scared of being deported, or you need to keep earning money however little. Many sex workers who are not being exploited don't like this tactic, accusing the police of disrupting their business and treating them all like potential victims, or even criminals. Martin is aware of this power dynamic and what's at stake.
4: I've had that feeling before, and I'll get it again, but to be honest, the onus is then very much on them because I can suspect all day long. Until I get some confirmation, you know, I can only suspect. The worst feeling in the world, and I've had it several times, is going in there, having a situation similar to that, knowing that there's something going on, knowing what's happening and having to walk away. I, I hate it.
3: So, why did you decide to help them? Oh. Like at the
1: time when police come in, I've been so tired mentally, physically. I was f- forced to work till late to the night or in the morning. I've been just tired. I I don't care anymore what happened or they find me or not find me. I mean, my bosses. Um, I just don't care anymore. I just want to. It's finishes, It's be over. I can't anymore going like that.
4: And we ended up getting disclosures, which ultimately is what started the investigation. So we removed her from the address.
3: After five years, Julia decides to not only tell the police that she needs help, but that she wants justice. She agrees to go into the National Referral Mechanism, the government system that identifies and gives support to victims of modern slavery in the UK, which triggers a 45-day recovery period in a safe house. But before she goes, she gives the rough location of where they might find her boss. And she gives a name. Alexander. At the safe house, Julia meets her support worker, Sarah, from the anti-slavery charity Justice and Care, who works with Surrey Police. Could you tell me about when you first met Julia?
5: I remember I met a very different person than she is today. So at that point, she was very, very nervous, very reserved, closed off to getting the support that I was offering. And that included counselling and also talking to police. At that point, rightfully so, she needed a period of stability and recovery. She needed distance from the situation she just fled. And I just said, I will be available for you. I'm here when you're ready. Let's get to know each other. Sarah
3: is a victim navigator at Justice and Care. As her job title suggests, her role is to help survivors navigate their way through life after they escape their traffickers. Things like healthcare, the asylum process and, crucially, the criminal justice system. The roles only existed for a few years, and there aren't many like it in the UK. Although Sarah wasn't there on the day that the police raided Julia's brothel, one of the most important parts of her job is going with police on these kind of operations, so that she, instead of the police, is the first person who talks to potential victims. It's an attempt to cut through the huge power imbalance and the lack of trust, between the often male police officers and those who might need help. To Sarah, whether the survivor chooses to work with the police or not is irrelevant. She'll still continue supporting them either way. But what's striking is that Justice and Care say that 92% of the victims that they match with a navigator do end up choosing to help the police and try to bring their traffickers to justice.
5: I think the very next visit, I remember driving with her and talking about counseling again and her saying, well, I don't I don't get I don't get how that could help anything. Um, I don't want to talk to anyone about what I've been through. But at that point, we had had a number of calls and conversations and we'd started to kind of build rapport. And she said, but I don't know, you, you say it's helped other people like, I trust you and I'm just going to, I'll try it. I'll, you know, I'll try it for you. Um, And at that point, you know, you want them to try it for themselves, but also we are here to help them make informed decisions and to expose them to things that they might not know about initially. And so kind of quickly one of the first priorities was getting her counseling. And that was, that was a huge, huge step forward in terms of her being able to talk about this difficulty she was having coping with trauma and, and to just start to, have more hope about being able to talk about a future because at the time I met her initially, it was just that day. There was no kind of next day. There was no future goals. There was a lot of discussion about wanting to be able to work and and support her family. But beyond that, it was um, a lot of hopelessness.
3: So obviously in this case, in, the, in Julia's case, it was a case of, of sexual exploitation in a brothel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think a lot of people would be surprised if they understood exactly what these, where these brothels were, mm-hmm. you know, I think there's still this un, this idea of these seedy addresses with women in basements. And c- yeah. could you could you kind of dispel those myths and tell yeah. us a bit about?
5: No, it's a really really good point because um, often people think sex industries, sex trafficking. You've got Thailand, Bangkok, these like red light districts, Amsterdam, whatever it is, and they think, well, it might be happening in the UK, but it must not be like to the same extent because you know we don't see it. There are no red light districts. Um, I have been in warrants, in, um, in brothels, on high streets, um, in nice massage parlors, which you know might be a stereotype, but that is also still the reality, um, in beautiful detached homes, in nice neighborhoods, in Airbnbs and hotels. It is literally anywhere that you can use a fake name, hire somewhere, rent somewhere, own a house, put it in someone else's name, where there is demand for sex, and that is everywhere. So... Yeah, if there's money to be made and you've got a house for three weeks that you can rent, it can be anywhere. You will probably move the girls uh, around different houses to keep it discreet, harder to track. But um, yeah, it's literally all of the nicest villages and towns and cities and high streets and houses.
3: Sex trafficking is the most profitable form of modern slavery uh, because, because of the huge demand. Could you just tell me a bit about that?
5: One example we had was that like one victim would make the traffickers 200,000 pounds in a year. And a lot of brothels have four to five people in them. So you have just, I mean, millions of pounds being generated from one brothel. And in certain towns, I'm aware that there are, you know, 20 to 25 brothels in that town. So if you take that to the scale of the whole UK, and that's going to be consistent across the UK, it is a multi, multi multi-million pound industry. That's all you know, untaxed (laughs) and uh, unknown. And that's the
3: hideous nature of it, isn't it? You've got, you can just use a human being over and over and over again if people are willing to pay, right?
5: Yeah, yeah, it's absolutely that. You know, until they break, victims, people are the the very best commodity because they can be reused and reused and reused and then changed out when they're no longer good. And you can move someone in a car and not necessarily know that they're a victim. Whereas if it was drugs, if it was a firearm, It is what it is. But humans can just be humans. There's nothing to say they're a slave. So it's quite easy to move this commodity without consequence and to reuse it until it's no longer good. Very lucrative, very low risk. Yeah.
3: I mean, there are laws in the UK as well to prosecute sex buyers who buy sex from Mm -hmm. trafficked people. What is it with this argument that men Mm. who go and, and bisex mm. can't possibly understand that the women that they're seeing are in a situation of exploitation what would you say to that kind of argument
5: so often we will go into a warrant and we'll find a customer who's still there it's easy for a customer to say i had no idea and as long as that's the story they're saying there's very little police can do about that i know that julia and others that i've worked with have said they didn't have time to to clean up between customers Um, they are crying when the next customer comes in there are plenty of opportunities where customers ex- are exposed to the reality of the situation of their, the people they're purchasing sex from and are choosing not to say anything um, because of their own shame and what they're involved in, perhaps. Often what we're able to do is use the customers as witnesses to at least the fact that they're, they were there to purchase sex because often victims won't say that that's what they're doing because they're ashamed of that. So if you can get a witness to say, while I was there to purchase sex, yes, then at least you have something to start working from um, and that does help.
1: For me, when Sarah come in, this slowly, slowly, step by step, I start talking with Sarah and telling everything. Is this very shame and very embarrassed talking about something like this?
3: was it like in those first months where you were building that rapport she was starting to get counseling you were starting to talk to her about potentially engaging with the police what did you come to know of her as as a person throughout those months
5: probably most I started realizing just how determined of a person she is she you know she wants to be able to do things for herself and initially her language barriers meant she could not advocate well for herself um, so you know, she said, I want English lessons, I want English tutors. Um, And we put those in place for her. She, working with a counselor, started to realize that the responses she was having in certain situations were actually um, not something to be embarrassed about, but are a symptom of post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, She would talk to me kind of, you know, consistently about being fearful and being so hyper aware anytime she's in a coffee shop of who else is in that coffee shop with her anyone who looks even slightly like the trafficker she would have panic attacks it is something that you know someone who is recovering and who can have a a normal conversation with you one day something triggers those memories of what she's been through and the next day we're starting from it felt like you know the very beginning again
3: was there a period of time where you started to realize what it was that she had been through.
5: Yeah, um, and it naturally happens. I mean, that's part of the benefit of my role is that I have flexibility and I have the ability to um, take the time to actually build rapport and build trust that police don't necessarily have the time to do. Um, So we had a number of visits in coffee shops and in her safe house where she would just, as she felt more comfortable with me, start to allude to some of the experiences that she'd had. And we got to a point, actually, where she, she in a coffee shop, wanted to map out the whole organized crime group. There's something about the time that she spent in this horrible situation. She actually got to know quite a bit about what was happening and what the structures were. Um, so she starts sharing with me, and that stuff with her consent that I was able to pass on to police. And that helped to give direction to um, the incredible policing team that we had so that they could start drafting kind of interview questions and start to direct their focus onto the right people within this organized crime group. She did not want other people to experience the same thing that she'd experienced. So that was the main driver behind her getting involved.
3: Coming up on Trafficked.
1: I see my bosses again in the video, they
4: they look at me. Are we going to find you on the CCTV at that time? No
5: comments. She'll want to know in practical terms how long does that actually mean? Yeah.
1: And you sit down here and you charge me for what? For what?
3: Our thanks to Justice and Care for putting us in touch with Julia and supporting her through the production of this podcast, especially Sarah and Jamie and to Surrey Police for allowing us access to their investigation. In order to protect identity, names in this series have been changed and Julia's voice has been altered. Suspected cases of modern slavery can be reported to the National Modern Slavery Helpline on 0800 121 700. If you're struggling with your mental health or having suicidal thoughts, please know that help is available. You can contact Samaritans any time of the day, for free, on 116 123 or email joe at samaritans.org. This series is reported and produced by me, Annie Kelly, and Elizabeth Casson. Sound design was by Rudy Zagadlo. The executive producer was Joshua Kelly. The commissioning editor is Nicole Jackson. We'll be back tomorrow.
2: That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hi, this is Bachelor Clues from Game of Roses, of course, and I want to talk about Club Med. Everybody knows Club Med has been the pioneer of the all-inclusive resort since 1950 with almost 70 resorts worldwide, ranging from